more and more people are using more and more of the ocean, so the pressures have ramped up. My favorite thing about the ocean is the sound of the waves. I realized I came across more plastic bags than fish. Go to the beach and fly my kite and go on the boardwalk. The more science we do, the bigger this problem appears. If we don't conserve the oceans, it would be really terrible. It'd be super heartbreaking. Unfathomable to me. It keeps us alive. Protecting nature is the best investment we can make. All this week, our series Trashing the High Seas is exploring the interconnection between humans and our oceans. We dispelled some mythology about Milwaukee earlier this hour. Well, there's plenty of mythology about life under the ocean's surface. Monsters and utopias, Jules Verne's Captain Nemo dreamt of an undersea paradise in his 20,000 leagues under the sea. See how peaceful it is here. The sea is everything. An immense reservoir of nature where I roam at will. Today we know it's no paradise under the seas, but how to quantify what remains there in resources and habitats. The Nature Conservancy, an organization devoted to protecting ecologically important lands and waters, has been creating an atlas of ocean wealth. Mark Spaulding, senior marine scientist at the Nature Conservancy, is the lead author of this atlas. He says the project started at least 10 years ago. The work began with trying to determine the value of oysters to ecosystems. Oysters, as you may know, are fairly diminutive little creatures, but they can grow into huge banks or reefs. Those banks, in fact, when the first European settlers came to the U.S., were so so huge that they were a navigational hazard. But those banks weren't just a navigational hazard or a food supply. They were also tremendous resources. Those oysters filtered the water. They acted as a habitat for young fish, so they added fish to the estuaries around the U.S., And we realized that, and we started to look into it. We also started to restore oyster reefs. But what we've done a little bit more recently is start to say, well, exactly how much water does an oyster filter? And that number's a pretty surprising number. It's one one oyster is going to filter 180 liters of water a day. And there are obviously millions of oysters in some of these reefs. With that comes improvements in water quality, improvements in clarity. The sunlight can filter through the water and get to the seabed. Then seagrasses start to grow. Suddenly, we've got a complex of ecosystems and an abundance of fish uh, that we've largely lost. But we realized that we could model this and start to build it up. And with those models, we can say exactly how much an additional acre of oysters or an additional mile of coral reefs or whatever will give you in terms of benefits to people you can translate that into dollars or jobs or whatever it might be and uh, if i was holding the atlas or if i was encountering the atlas directly what kinds of explorations could i go on what could i see what kinds of comparisons could i make we focused on five major sets of benefits that nature gives to people so the first part of the atlas focuses on fish production you think about habitats as fish factories and certain parts of the ocean generate lots of fish. And we we work at multiple scales. So there are global maps in the atlas where you can just see how much fish are being produced by coral reefs, by mangrove forests, and so on. And at times we focus, we zoom right in. So we tell the story about the seagrass beds of, of Australia, for example, where one additional hectare of seagrass is going to generate an additional 30,000 fish into an estuary worth $24,000 that's every year. So that's a huge amount from an area that's um, pretty much 100 yards by 100 yards. It's a pretty small area. Well, it's all very compelling. And I guess, uh, what kind of circulation do you envision for this atlas? And how much of a reference would it become in the sense that 
people in schools would refer to it as frequently as they refer to other more traditional reference books? I think the atlas is part of a movement. I don't know that our atlas will be the the definitive turning point. I hope it'll get out to, to many thousands of people. So it's not just the conservationists sort of clamoring for more protected areas, but it's actually, there's a whole audience. In fact, it's everyone who benefits from a healthy ocean so that we can have other people also calling for the sustainable use or the restoration of the ocean. When you are trying to conflate a number of uh, maps about a particular place, what do you have to be concerned about? I mean, I suppose the first thing is to make sure that all of the maps of the same place represent the same point in time, right? Yeah. The other issue that comes up a lot is that, you know, we've told this story from one perspective only. We've said, okay, so coral reefs generate fish, but actually they also generate dollars. Reefs are coastal defenses, they're fish factories, they are tourist destinations, and on all of those fronts, they add value. And that's also quite often when nature services stand out from the replacement that we give them. So we talk, for example, of the value of seawalls or sea defenses to try and stop erosion on coasts. But the concrete seawalls that we tend to build will only do that. Now, if we've got the space, and it won't work everywhere, but if we've got the space uh, and the models show us it'll work, we can put a mangrove forest instead of a seawall. We won't only get the protection from wave erosion, but we'll also get tons, literally tons of extra fish per kilometer of coast. And we will also get the storage of carbon because mangroves are the most efficient forests in the world for taking carbon dioxide out of the air and packing it into the soil. So we'll get a host of other benefits, which you'd never get from a seawall. How much of uh, this atlas is a charge for explorers and scientists to finish the project of documenting the ocean, both uh, in terms of its surface, its mid-level zones, and of course the bottom of the ocean, which has not been fully mapped. I think our premise was actually we know enough to make a start. And so our mantra in this was review what's out there, model it, and map it. There are gaps in the knowledge, and we must push towards filling those gaps. What's your favorite place in the ocean? (laughs) I'm really lucky. I have a parallel job which gets me out to a very remote corner of the Indian Ocean once a year. It's called the British Indian Ocean Territory. And it's one of the few pristine places left on the planet or near pristine. I just have to say that it's remarkable to go out to a place like that and see just how productive a coral reef can be. And these reefs are heaving with fish. But I think seeing a place like that is, yeah, of course, it's kind of inspirational and wonderful and beautiful. But it also you know, increases my conviction of just how incredibly productive and powerful the oceans are and how we really just can't afford to mess this up. Mark Spaulding is senior marine scientist at the Nature Conservancy and lead author of the Atlas of Ocean Wealth. Thank you so much, Mark. You're very welcome. Thank you.